From creation to the flood to the patriarchs to Egypt, join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through Genesis, the backstory to the beginning. It'll be really, really good. But we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 32. So Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. And so he named the place Mahanaim. Mahanaim is the Hebrew uh, for two camps, uh, two companies. Uh, So it was the company of Jacob and it was the company of God's angels. Now that's interesting because it's the angels of God. Before we've seen the angel, there was a couple of angels of God, but it almost seems like if this is the camp of God, uh, that almost sounds like there's more than one angel there, and maybe even a whole camp of angels there. So he placed the he named the place Mahanaim, and so you have both Jacob's camp and the angels of God's camp are at the both place, uh, both at the same place. It doesn't seem as if there's any interaction between them, except that Jacob calls him the place Mahanaim. And uh, apparently Mahanaim is one of those places that's used extensively throughout the Old Testament. It's referred to a bunch of different times. And uh, a lot of different events happen in the Old Testament at Mahanaim. So this is um, a place that Jacob named. And, and um, when it shows up in the other places in the Old Testament, people remember that it was Jacob that named this place Mahanaim. And it was because this is where the angels of God were. There were two camps there. All right, so verse three, Jacob then sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant, Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle, I have donkeys, I have sheep and goats, male and female servants, and now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. So the stage has been set. Uh, Jacob has no idea what it's gonna be like when he meets Esau. So he sends a message. He says, okay, here's my, you send a message to Esau. Listen, I've come into my own now. I am not this piddly man that left with nothing 20 years ago. I left with nothing, but now I've come back. I've got servants. I have male and female servants. I have cattle. I have donkey. I have sheep. I have everything that um, uncle, you know, grandpa Abraham had, Isaac has, but I, I got all this by sheer wit and the help of God. And I didn't take anything with me when I left you, but now I'm coming back and look how much I'm bringing back to the camp. I've got all this stuff and you should be pretty happy that I'm coming back. And uh, I think under normal circumstances, Esau would be happy. I mean, he's got probably things that he'd, I think he's tried to maintain his father Isaac's camp. We have no idea what happened there. He's at least got 400 men. So he's still a pretty wealthy, powerful guy in his own right. But then to have his brother Jacob come and join him and to have all this other wealth. I mean, together they could be pretty powerful force uh, if they would join together. If they destroy each other, then there'll be nothing. And I'm sure Jacob wants to tell his brother Esau, don't, let's not fight. Fighting solves no problems. And the only reason why we would fight is because you're still angry with me for something that happened 20 years ago. 
Don't do this. And so Jacob is probably a little bit flustered, upset, apprehensive that his brother Esau is coming back to meet him with 400 men. I mean, think about it. That's a lot of men to come and meet your brother. And um, it is a significant force. And yet, that's the way it is. So what happens? Well, let's find out. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and the camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. And then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown to your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have come and become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid that he will come and attack me, and also the mothers and their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted." So we see that Jacob is in great fear and distress that his brother's coming with 400 people, but he's smart. He wants, to, he wants to continue his legacy, and he knows that if he's wiped out, his legacy won't continue. And so he, divide, he makes this plan. He's going to take his camp and divide it into two groups, the flocks, the herds, the camels, and everything. He's going to split it down the middle, and he's going to say, when my brother Esau attacks and kills one camp, Maybe the other camp that isn't attacked, maybe they can escape. And it's a pretty smart thing to do because, as we know, if Jacob and Esau fight, Esau's only doing it out of spite. And once he gets it out of his head to kill and maim Jacob, and maybe he'll kill Jacob, um, then maybe his anger will be subsided, but at least part of the, the 100% of it won't be destroyed. It'll only be 50% of it'll be destroyed. So that's pretty clever. It appears that Jacob has learned human nature pretty well. And he's learned how to fend for himself and do pretty clever things to stay alive. Or at least let his camp stay alive. Um, so, so actually, I think this is really brilliant of Jacob to divide the camp into two. I mean, if somebody were coming after you and you wanted to survive, would you? I mean, that would be a great thing to do, right? If, if you knew you were going to be robbed tonight... And the robbers were not going to be happy until they left with something. And you divided all your properties and valuables into two things. And you hid both of them. Maybe by the, you know, if they find the one hiding and they loot that and they go home and say, we got what we came for. But um, so it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty smart, clever move by Jacob. So Jacob prays to God. Now, this is the other thing that Jacob does. And I, I'm very impressed by this. Because Jacob goes back to the source. He goes back to the creator, the one that told Jacob that you will be, uh, you will be, you and your descendants will prosper and you will have so many descendants, they'll be like the sands of the sea, which cannot be counted. And so Jacob holds up to God this promise that came through Jacob that there will be so many descendants that, that you cannot count them. It'd be like the sands of the sea. Because 
when God makes a promise, you can always hold God to his promise. And if, um, if God told Jacob, when God told Jacob that you will be like the descendants of the sands of the sea, Jacob could hold God to that promise. And so in times of stress, Jacob goes back to, to God and says, listen, this is the promise you made to me. You better fulfill your promise. You are the one that told me to go back to my country. You're the one that told me to leave Uncle Laban. You're the one that told me to, to have this encounter with Esau. Uh, Esau. And now we are two camps, and uh, I'm going to have, you know, at least let one of these camps survive, please, because otherwise my descendants will not go beyond me. And I think that's true for all of us. Any promise that God has made to us in Scripture, and there are several, we can hold God to those promises because when God makes a promise, he never turns back on his promise. Of course, the greatest promise of all is that he will love us, he will care for us, that we are his precious children, that we can come to him in prayer, um, that, um, that because of Jesus, uh, all of, our, all of the, the evil that we do in our life has been wiped away and washed clean and we can actually come to God and uh, be his precious children and is in his kingdom, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything has Christ done for us. I mean, those are promises of God that we can cling to. And we know that they're going to come true because God promised them to us. And we can hold God accountable to the promises that he has given us. And it may sound a little bit arrogant, I think, but if God makes a promise to you and he's God, then we can hold him to the promises. And so that's what Jacob is doing. Uh, and so now the stage is set. In great fear and distress, divides into two camps, and then he prays to God and says, will you help me here? Well, let's see what happens. So we continue on. So Jacob spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys, and he put them in the care of his servants, and each herd by itself, and he said to his servant, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. And then he instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau and he is coming behind us. Now this, my friends, is so clever. I am so impressed with Jacob because instead of just sending Esau the gift that he has for Esau, Jacob understands human nature. Like the gift might have an impact, but then Jacob might immediately turn around and say, yeah, I can kill my brother and I can receive all this gift. Uh, and so what he does is he, he breaks this gift into three different sections. And he has the first section arrive first and you get that shock value. And Esau's like, wow, look at all this stuff that my brother Jacob owns. Now that would be the end of it, except then another one comes later on there's another gift that's equal of equal value and size. It's like, this is for you also. And then a third one, a little bit later, here's the third one. Now think of the psychological impact that this has. I mean, if you were to give somebody a gift, let's say you're going to give somebody um, 
I don't know. What was the last gift you gave somebody? Um, I, you know, for me, it was an Amazon gift card. <laughs> if I wanted to give somebody an Amazon gift card, I could give them a $25 gift card, right? Or, uh, well, let's say, uh, let, let's say it's $75 Amazon gift card, or I could give them a $25 gift card. And then the next day I could do a $25 gift card. And the next day I could do another $25 Amazon gift card. So it's the same amount of money, but it's just spaced out differently. And I believe the impact of this uh, is better than just all at once. And Jacob understands this. Uh, when you give a gift to somebody, think about do you give the gift all at once or do you, are you going to break it apart? Now, it's interesting that... In the Old English, the 12 days of Christmas lasts from the birth of Christ to the Epiphany, where the Magi come and adore the child. And that's 12 days. And that's called the 12 days of Christmas. And in uh, the English culture, the Old English culture, and probably other cultures around the world, Christmas doesn't just last Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. It lasts a whole 12 days. And I love cultures that celebrate the 12 days of Christmas with a gift every day. And it prolongs the joy of Christmas throughout the Christmas season. Now, here in the United States, we have it all backwards. Christmas for us starts, well, it used to start the day after Thanksgiving, but now it seems like it's, you know, right now, practically, they're putting things in the stores for Christmas. Um, and so it lasts the day after Thanksgiving. What do they call that? I hate... I think they call it Black Friday. I don't like that because it's, uh, I don't know why. I mean, it just, it sounds like Dark Friday or Evil Friday or Shopping Friday or something like that. It should be Celebratory Friday. I don't know. I just don't like the, I don't like Black Friday. It just seems like a, like a bad thing to call, you know, a day that's supposed to be filled with joy and shopping and that sort of thing. And, and I know they call it Black Friday because a lot of people go, you know, they're, they're going to the red. Maybe they don't, at least it's not Red Friday, right? Um, but anyway, uh, in, at Christmas, we, I love the tradition and we've celebrated in our house, uh, this way, although I've never given a gift every day and I kick myself for not doing this. But, uh, if you've got young children at home and you're still celebrating Christmas, think about, uh, separating the gifts and just give something. I mean, it could be something very, very simple. Like we have a thing called a stocking. And so we have stocking stuff, stuffers and we would put all sorts of crazy things in the stocking stuffer like pencils and erasers and um, uh, what else did we put in there? Um, we just, you know, uh, handkerchiefs, socks, um, you know, all sorts of crazy gifts. And so uh, that, that was on the mantle of the fireplace. And then on Christmas Day, the kids were able to take off their stocking and go through the stocking stuffers with all sorts of just little garbage. You know, we, we probably spent 20 bucks per, spock, per stocking or something like that. But maybe that would be the day is, is to actually get, get uh, what is it, seven, 12 days of Christmas and $10, so 120 bucks and, or, you know, five bucks and just divide it and every day put something in the stocking stuffer so that, you know, the kids could go and get one thing out of the stocking. And uh, that's a way to prolong Christmas because Christmas is, is too important of an event to just let it die on Christmas Day. And the older I get, the more I realize how important that is because you don't get many holidays in your life. And for a pastor, Christmas is the most stressful time on God's green earth because 
how many you know how many sermons and you know all that there's just a lot going on at Christmas time there's a lot to manage and when you're first starting out as a pastor it's overwhelming and um, and so you don't get to enjoy Christmas that well uh, but but once that part is over you can enjoy the 12 days after Christmas and so um, then that's why we started you know doing things after Christmas um, because because that's that's when you can relax and start enjoying the family and that sort of thing, if they're still around. And so um, just think about that. Think about uh, Christmas and how you want to celebrate Christmas. But we're back to the story of Jacob. And what Jacob does is he takes all this wealth and he divides it into three and he gives his brother Esau a triple whammy. Boom, boom, boom on the gift. And he instructs them when he meets Esau, he tells the servants to say, this belongs to your servant Jacob. They are gifts sent to my Lord Esau, and he's coming behind us. And then the next gift, and the next gift. And I'm sure that the impact of all this is incredible. Uh, let's, let's continue reading. And so uh, Jacob also instructed the second and the third and all others who followed the herds, you are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. And later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. So um, Jacob sends all the gifts to his brother Esau in advance. And um, then Jacob stays behind in the camp. And the question then is, What's going to happen when Esau and Jacob meet? And Jacob right now doesn't know. And it's always the fear of the unknown that is the more difficult thing, right? Uh, it's always uh, when, you've, when you are feeling a pain and the doctor says, hey, it might be this or that. Uh, it could be cancer. Uh, it could be a gallstone or a gallbladder. Or, hey, I don't know what it is, but let's run a bunch of tests. And so you... You go into the hospital or you go into the outpatient and they run all these tests and then you're waiting. And that period of time between the pain and the diagnosis, I have noticed for most people is more difficult than just knowing what's going on. Because once you know what's going on, you can deal with that problem. It's the unknown that's hard to deal with. And why is that? Because the unknown could be as simple as, uh, you know, a hung toenail to, uh, or a hangnail, or what do they call it, a hangnail, to death, right? Or, or painful death. Or, and you just don't know. The spectrum of, of all of that is, is so wide and diverse that if you're a person like Jacob that obviously plans for the future, when you're planning for the future, you think of all the different scenarios, and I'm sure that in his head, Jacob's scenario, the worst case scenario for Jacob is this. Brother Esau is still very, very angry at me. He's never forgotten. He's now gotten more angry at me because I left, and I know what I used to do around the camp and how much uh, managerial things I took care of when Esau was out hunting. And now Esau had to take care of all that stuff, and it may not have gone well for him. And so, and so of, instead of letting this anger go away and dissipate, maybe it went down deep into his soul, 
and has boiled and boiled and boiled for 20 years. And now he is so angry at me that it's going to erupt and he's going to kill me. He's going to kill all the, the, the goods that I come with. And it's all going to be decimated and wiped out uh, when all of this could be part of the camp. If we join together and join our forces, it could be all this wealth and all this property can make us the shining example of the whole region. And he doesn't want his brother to destroy it. And, uh, and so he's, he's running through all these scenarios in his mind trying to figure out what's going to happen. And he's in fear. And he's upset and he's done. He's done a great plan. He's divided everything into three. And he's this is a gift from my brother, Esau, you know, from my brother, Jacob. Uh, he's done about all he can do. He's prayed to God, which is about the best thing you can do. And now Jacob is staying by himself, spending the night in the camp. And um, what happens in that night in the camp? Well, something does happen. And uh, it is probably the most significant thing that happens in Jacob's life. And it is a wonderful thing. It's a scary thing. And it's for Israelites, for Jewish people, it is probably the most significant thing that happens in uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, maybe not the most significant. I think the rest of Genesis tells the most significant thing, but it is a very, very significant thing, and it explains a couple things. And uh, we don't have enough time today to talk about what that significant thing is. So we're going to leave that for tomorrow. But we're going we're gonna to talk about Jacob just for a few more minutes. He's obviously he's grown. Uh, he's come into his own. He has all this wealth. He's smart. He's intelligent. He's clever. Uh, and he's not afraid to stay alone and spend alone time, which is pretty amazing. Uh, I guess in that respect, I feel a kinship with Jacob because I'm also a person that tries to go down all the rabbit holes of what could happen and then plan for the, for the future as much as possible. Um, I also, when difficult times happen, I like to go to God in prayer and ask for his help. Hey, in this whole COVID thing, right? I don't know what the best thing to do is. Um, you know, you, you can make plans, you can do things as well as you can, but ultimately it's under God's hands. So, well, if it's in God's hands, why not go to God in prayer and say, God, I can't deal with this. You deal with this. This I'm going to put this one on you, Lord. Um, a lot of things, I, you know, you've given me a mind, you've given me, you know, the wherewithal to do many, many things myself. But there are times when we reach a wall or a brick or something in our life where we can't deal with it ourselves. And those are the times when the best thing to do is just to simply go to God and say, God, I'm laying this one on you and I'm not gonna carry the burden of trying to figure this out anymore. And I'm not gonna try to carry, carry the burden of what the future is gonna hold anymore. I'm not gonna start, I'm not gonna continue going down rabbit holes and say, if this happens, I'm gonna do this. And if this happens, I'm gonna do this. And if this happens, I'm gonna do this uh, anymore. I'm just, I'm just going to say I prepared as best as I can, uh, but I'm done preparing and now I'm going to leave the whole thing in your hands. And Lord, you can take care of it a whole lot better than I can. And that's, um, it seems like in my life, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a person that I think has been gifted from God to, tr to solve problems, uh, 
my first go-to is to try to solve the problem myself. And so I've done that most of my life. But over the years, as I've gotten older and wiser and seen that there are some problems I can't solve, uh, and it's foolish to even try to go down every rabbit hole and try to figure out how to solve every potential thing that could happen in life, um, I just prepare. You know, I do one or two things that I think will help prepare for the future. And then I just let the rest of it rely on the hands of God. God, it's up to you. You take the wheel, Jesus, um, because there's just some things in life that I can't do myself. And, uh, and that has been a growing experience for me. And I don't know if, if you've come to that conclusion in your life or not, but you know, that's, that's what I've learned in my life is that there are just things you can't prepare for. Uh, and so you do your best and then you just lay it on God's altar and his throne and say, God, this one's on you and I'll accept whatever you choose to do on it. Now, that doesn't mean we can't prepare and plan and, you know, do the reasonable, precautious things, which we all should do. Um, but if you're a person like me that tries to plan for every eventual outcome, it's a fool's game because you can't plan for every eventual outcome. Plan for the best, you know, the worst one or two or three, you know, take good, reasonable precautions. The ones that everybody says, these are precautions you should take, but you can't fight everything. And there are points where you just have to take reasonable precautions and then let it in God's hands. And uh, that's kind of what Jacob has done here. He's, he's done about as good as he can. Uh, and then he's prayed to God and says, God, I'm going to leave this in your hands. And now he's alone by himself. And tomorrow we'll find out what happens when he's alone by himself. So um, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear God, uh, thank you for the wisdom to prepare for the things that we need to prepare for. But Lord, uh, thank you for your grace and your glory and your power to pick up where our wisdom and our preparation leave off. We thank you for that. Lord, help us to prepare when we should. Help, uh, thank you for your strength um, for when we didn't prepare enough. Uh, and Lord, uh, be in our lives and, and give us your power and strength when we need it. In Jesus' name.